You are now listening to the March 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello everyone, this is Brian Winston from Biblical Stewardship. During the week, instead of worrying about life like the world does, did you first seek God's kingdom and righteousness like a child of God? What do you think your reason for living is? Why did God let you live on earth? Was it for you to make your dream and vision come true? Do you think God placed you on earth so you can enjoy your life? Can a Christian's life be separated into a spiritual life and one's own life? For example, many people think that tithing is an obligation in spiritual life. When you ask people who tithe the reason they tithe, they reply by saying that one out of ten belongs to God. Of course, that reply is not wrong. However, when we say 1 out of 10 belongs to God, it shouldn't mean that 9 out of 10 belongs to them. Instead, the reason why we give 1 out of 10 should mean that all of it belongs to God. I'm not trying to tell you how to tithe, so please do not think about tithing right now. I'm trying to tell you about your life. I'm asking you if part of your life is related to the Lord and the other part is not related. Just as all ten belongs to God, is every moment of our lives related to God? Although there are times when we turn our attention away from God, there is never a moment when God turns His attention away from us. He doesn't take His eyes away from His children, who were bought with the price of the blood of His only Son. Then the following question is possible. Is the situation I'm in a result of my own effort, or is it part of God's plan? If we believe that God is in charge of everything and He leads us, then we can accept that our situation is not from our own effort, but it's something God allowed to happen. Do you agree? If we agree, then we'll look at what Apostle Paul said to Timothy. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7-11. through 11. We didn't bring anything into the world. We can't take anything out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be happy with that. People who want to get rich are tempted. They fall into a trap. They are tripped up by wanting many foolish and harmful things. Those who live like that are dragged down by what they do. They are destroyed and die. Love for money causes all kinds of evil. Some people want to get rich. They have wandered away from the faith. They have wounded themselves with many sorrows. But you are a man of God. Run away from all these things. Try hard to do what is right and godly. Have faith love, and gentleness. Hold on to what you believe. When the apostle says we, in the passage we just read, who is he referring to? Is he just referring to himself and Timothy? Or is he referring to all Christians? Of course, he is referring to all of us who are Christians. Apostle Paul wants us to realize that we Christians didn't bring anything into the world and we can't take anything out of it. Since we can't take anything out of it, we shouldn't pile things up. If we have food and clothing, we should be happy. This is what he advised his spiritual son, Timothy. He warns that there is danger in going beyond this and becoming rich. Did you know that there is danger in trying to become rich? Why is it dangerous to become rich? In the beginning, I asked if it's possible for you to separate your own individual life and your spiritual life in fellowship with God. 
The answer is that it is not possible to do so. It is because even though we may try to leave God, He will not leave those of us who were bought with the price of the blood of His only Son. I'll ask you again, why is it dangerous to try to become rich? When Apostle Paul refers to those who try to become rich, he means those who try to be rich out of their own plan and thoughts instead of God allowing it. God did not allow it, but they try to become rich on their own. Those people are dangerous. Why is that? Those who try to become rich without God's permission are tempted. They fall into a trap. They are tripped up by wanting many foolish and harmful things. Those who live like that are dragged down by what they do. When we try to become rich, even though God didn't allow it, it means we love money. Therefore, Apostle Paul says love for money causes all kinds of evil. Then he said those who want to get rich have wandered away from the faith. They have wounded themselves with many sorrows. As mentioned before, this message is not just for Timothy, but all Christians. That's if you believe that God's Word in the Bible is speaking to us. What does Apostle Paul tell us to do? He clearly tells us that people of God must run away from all these things and try hard to do what is right and godly. They must have faith, love, and gentleness. I often meet those who say they try to become rich to do the Lord's work. I was also like that at one time. I wanted to become rich to do the Lord's work. That's not a bad thought. However, it's only a thought of a cute little child. It's because becoming rich or not rich is not determined by us, but by God. Along with warning Timothy about becoming rich, he also gives warnings to those who are already rich. Let's read verses 17 through 19. Command people who are rich in this world not to be proud. Tell them not to put their hope in riches. Wealth is so uncertain. Command those who are rich to put their hope in God. Tell them to be rich in doing good things. They must give freely. They must be willing to share. In this way, they will store up true riches for themselves. It will provide a firm basis for the next life. Then they will take hold of the life that really is life. Listen to what he is saying to those who are already rich. The Bible tells us not to put our hope in riches, but to look to God and put our hope in God. This means one should think about why God allowed one to become rich and use one's wealth according to his will. How should one use the wealth? One must do what is good and be rich in doing good things. One must give freely and be willing to share. If someone who is already rich is not doing this, then one can fall into the same danger as those who try to become rich. What situation are you in? Are you trying to become rich? May you accept the word in the Bible in faith and humility. Becoming rich is not our will, but God's will. Are you already rich? If so, may you also accept the word in the Bible in faith and humility. God who made you rich desires for you to store your riches in His kingdom. As always, I'm not trying to force you. I'm merely telling you the word in the Bible. The decision is up to you. This concludes today's episode of Biblical Stewardship. Thank you for listening. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The end 
And I love that old cross Where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain So I've cherished the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I Next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Jesus said, it's what inside that counts. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Why don't you go ahead and turn with me again, uh, turned away from there to Mark 7. We want to look at this text. And the first thing that we're going to see is that the Pharisees said law-breaking disciples had dirty hands. We see that in the first five verses. Here's what it says. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Holding to the tradition of the elders... And they, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, on the face of it, you might be wondering, uh, why on earth is this special deployment of Pharisees who were scribes sent all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee to give all these disciples trouble about washing their hands before they eat. I mean, why is that such a big deal? Well, some of you might just be wondering (laughs) as you read this, just how dirty were these disciples' hands that they would be categorized as defiled, right? I mean, like, what were they doing before they ate that they weren't just dirty, but defiled? Well, it's interesting. Defiled here actually is speaking about ceremonial language, and it means that they were ceremonially impure. It's kind of the difference between common and being consecrated, uh, not really usable for the purposes of God. And as you read this, you might think to yourself, oh, well, maybe it's like Jackson, and and he needed to wash his hands before he ate like we all should. And uh, that man that didn't, he, he, he should have done that. That's not what's going on here at all. 
See, what's going on here is more complex. Now, I'm not saying, please hear me, that I don't think it's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. But the only hand washing that's required in the Old Testament is for priests before they are doing priestly duties. They're the ones who are supposed to wash their hands. And so this idea that we find here that they are to do this as normal Jews and and that all Jews were doing this doesn't seem to be the actual case. Why do I say that? Well, a commentary by R.T. France, he says this. He says the extension of this principle of washing hands to the eating of ordinary food and to the Jewish people other than priests was a matter of scribal development. It is unlikely that ritual hand washing was yet the norm amongst ordinary people. So it's more likely that the Pharisees are imposing their own standards on these disciples and Jesus as spiritual guides so that they can show their shortcomings. They're saying, look, we've got these rules. Everybody's keeping them, but they don't keep the rules. They're not as good as us. But Mark is clear here. The the traditions of the elders, like hand washing along with those others that he lists, washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, those are not biblical issues. See, this is what we call legalism. Now, to be clear, recent scholarship has come out. It's been written by guys like E.P. Sanders, and they've said, oh, well, you know, in Jesus' day, they, they weren't really struggling with legalism. Uh, we've read that back into the story. But the reality is, what we read here is pretty clear, and don't miss this. Uh, I believe it's obvious that legalism is a topic of discussion. So don't miss this. I believe the voice of a legalist screams with various volumes from every heart. Uh, To some degree or another, has at some times, and maybe even right now, is a legalist, whether they know it or not. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson writes that legalism is embedded in the heart of every man or woman, almost from the very day of his creation. Catch this. If you haven't been around Christians for very long, let me let you in on a secret. If they ever call you a legalist, it is about the worst word they can call you. It is not an encouragement. It is not meant to talk about what a a fine, litigious person you are, about your understanding of the law and how things work. It is meant to put you down. See, we know this. Legalism is is a title that is uh, given and said to people uh, when you are a Christian or someone who thinks you're a Christian about another Christian. And it is about the worst thing that they can call you short of being a Yankees fan. A legalist is a horrible thing to be called. And people use it wrong all the time. Don't miss this. People use it wrong all the time. So when you think about legalism, uh, it is a word that has a specific meaning. In other words, if someone is serious about obeying God. They are excited to obey the Lord because they love Him. It does not mean that he or she is a legalist. What it means is they are a Christian. In fact, if you read 1 John 5, 3, it says this very clearly, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments, catch this, are not burdensome. That's what it means to be a Christian. So sometimes people who don't care about obeying God, uh, they feel guilty about their loose life around people who love to obey God. And so they call them a legalist. And it makes them feel better. Now that's not the only reason that we call people legalists. Sometimes we call people legalists because they are legalists and we're worried that they've missed the gospel. But that's not always the case. So I think we need to make sure we know what a legalist is. Now, a legalist is good business, and there are lots of different departments, so let me tell you about some of the different jobs in the legalist category. I I worked really hard on these titles, so I hope you're going to appreciate these. If you don't, I'm not going to hold myself to your legal standard. But here's one. First, you have the accountant legalist, right? The accountant legalist. Maybe you've uh, met this person, and this is the person who says, you know what, at the end of the day, when I come before God in heaven... Uh, What I really believe is, is that he saves people based on whether they have more credits than debits in this life. In other words, at the end of the day, uh, my salvation is based on whether or not I just basically have done more good than bad. And hopefully I'm coming up after somebody like Hitler, right? So my goods look a lot better. That's the accountant legalist. The person that says, 
I'm going to be saved basically because I'm a good person. Uh, But there's a second kind of legalist. That's the debt collector. And this is the person I think that all of us can be to some degree. And it's, it's this person who believes that God owes him or her for their obedience. Have you gotten mad ever? Because you have suffered while trying to honor Jesus with your life and wondered what you've missed. Right? I've been honest. I've been faithful. Why is it that my life doesn't look like a life of blessing for my faithfulness? Or how have you failed God? Have you thought about how you have failed God to bring something so bad upon yourself? You've been doing the credits and debits thing and you're like, I must have failed God for my life to have turned out this way. Or maybe someone who's not as good as you gets blessed in a way that doesn't seem fair compared to what God has done for you and your heart gets angry or even bitter. It's a legalist that's coming out. Or, or what about third? You've got the Green Beret legalist. You know these guys? Salvation by grace alone. But my sanctification, me becoming more like Jesus every day, it's about me pulling up my bootstraps myself. I might be dependent on Him for salvation, but daily holiness is something that I do. That's where I kick in. It's a Green Beret legalist. And it's hard not to slip into patterns of believing that once we were saved, we can now obey God's good commands without being daily dependent on our good God for our holiness. Or what about the red carpet legalist? We see these here, hypocrites, uh, those who are actors, who act out the role of a Christian. They obey the letter of the law, but they violate the spirit of the law and they have no heart for God. See, their religion is about keeping the externals, about how people view them as someone who loves God, rather than loving God from the heart. Or what about the congressman legalist? These are folks who actually are all about writing new laws, right? Like they love God's Word, but they want to add their own laws in addition to God's Word. And at the end of the day, their laws are more important than God's laws. So they treat human rules and traditions as the Word of God and will exclude those who don't abide by those rules. This is what the Pharisees are doing in Mark 7. Or what about the antinomian legalist. I know some of you, you've been reading a lot of theology and you're thinking that's not right. Like that's not what we're taught. Uh, We're taught that uh, obedience has two ditches and you've got one ditch over here that is the antinomian or it doesn't matter how I live. There's no law for the Christian ditch. And then over here, there's another ditch and that's the ditch of self-righteousness and legalism. And, And those are two different things. They don't go together. And I think that it might be helpful to keep those things separate. A life that it doesn't matter if you obey. uh, And a life that says that all that matters is that you obey. Uh, Maybe you're thinking those are two completely different things. Do you know that I think that actually there's a way in which they're the same thing? Maybe you've met folks who ascribe to a kind of grace that says it does not matter how you live. And and the reality is, uh, they have written a new law that is not a biblical law, and it's this law. It's that there's one rule, and that's that there are no rules. And you cannot tell me what to do, which is a legalist, and it's not the way that the Bible describes grace. The Bible describes grace in such a way that it says that if you have been saved by God, you've been given the Holy Spirit sealed upon your heart, and it will change your life. And so if we say, actually, I've got a little emendation I would like to, I'd like to change that just a little bit and say, actually, it doesn't matter how you live, that's a new law that you have written yourself that is not coming from the very Word of God itself. And so there are all kinds of ways that we can become legalist, making new laws for ourselves. And sometimes, it's interesting, intolerance is actually the best way to describe the doctrine of tolerance that we write all across our doctrines and our culture. For instance, in our culture, we we see that believing in a biblical picture of marriage and gender will actually ostracize you from even some professing Christian circles. If you just believe the biblical view of what it says about marriage and gender, you can be ostracized for holding to the Word of God. And we've seen this happen with a number of denominations like the PCUSA. I've had friends who've lost their church buildings in their retirement because they said, we're just believing the Bible like we always have. And they said, well, we don't believe that anymore. But regardless of what form of legalism you ascribe to, Jesus cuts to the heart of the issue for these Pharisees and us in verses 6-13. to See, the legalist is concerned 
with the unclean hands of others when they ought to be concerned with their own unclean hearts. They're so fixated on this that they've missed this. And that's exactly the thing that Jesus wants to draw attention to. So notice, you'll notice as you look to verses 6 to 13, there, second, Jesus says, the Pharisees' laws break God's laws. The Pharisees, the laws that they've made, break God's laws. And he's going to show us this in a couple of ways. First, he's going to point us to a prophecy by Isaiah. And then he's going to say, here's a practical outworking of how your laws actually contradict the laws of God. Now first, you'll notice the root of their problem in Isaiah's prophecy in verses 6 to 8. See, he says Isaiah warned us of the problem of legalists. And look what he says in verses 6 to 8. It says there, and he said to them, as being Jesus, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me. Teaching is doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, Jesus calls them hypocrites, uh, which is a, a word that comes from an idea of a play actor, somebody who is playing a role, somebody who pretends to be something they are not. And he says, the prophet Isaiah warned us about guys like you. See, your lips, your lips say that you love God, but your, your hearts are actually far from God. Now, if you're wondering, is it a bad thing to have a heart that is far from God? What they would have understood the heart to mean is actually the, the very seat of your mind, your will, your emotions. It is the core of what makes you, you. And he is saying here that this heart, this core of what makes you, you, this spiritual, intellectual center of you, it is far from God. It's not a good place to be. And then he says your worship is vain or, or meaningless as evidenced by the fact that you teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Your teaching has taken on the kind of authority in your life and the life of others of God's voice. And catch this. He doesn't just say you equate man-made teachings with the Bible. He says they've abandoned God and His Word for man's words. Legalism results from a heart that is far from God. It is not a small sin, though it is a sin that oftentimes we feel like we can be more patient with. True legalism at its core is a dangerous and corrosive thing. And here what we find is, is that it has resulted from a heart that is far from God and a heart that has abandoned God's Word for some alternative truth. That is, a lie. Legalism is putting your life and the trust of your life and your salvation and your hope in a lie, something that's not true. Legalism is heartless religion that rests in the innovation of man rather than the provision of God. Hear me, long before legalism results in a cold judgmentalism towards others, it abandons God. Think about that. My heart, if it has grown cold towards my children, and I am nitpicking them, or my wife, and all I can think about is not the grace that is evident in her life, but all of her failures for not keeping my rules, or if I'm at church and I'm talking about everybody's failures, and that's the thing that I like to talk about, and I can't find myself speaking about the grace of God at work in their lives, the Holy Spirit that is powerful amongst us. The greater problem is, is that it seems that in this text, uh, the first and major problem is I have stepped away from God. And, and it could be that the louder my protestations are, uh, and the criticisms that I have about our others are, is really not a problem with that person. Could be that, but probably it is a problem with my very heart and its posture towards God. Friends, your mouth speaks of what's in the heart. The heart reveals where you stand before God and what you value. See, we are all horizontal legalists after, only after we are vertical legalists. If we abandon God in our hearts, we will judge others without mercy. And that's why Jesus follows up with a very practical example of the way their legalism proves 
so heartless. In verses 9 to 13, he says, your, your rules show the problem with your heart. Let me give you an example, case in point. The practical example of legalism in the way that you deal with the fifth commandment. Right? Here's how this played out on the ground of their everyday experiences. So, so you'll remember the fifth commandment God gave Moses, and it says to honor your father and mother. And that would include caring for them financially in their old age, protecting them. And the tradition of the elders, when asked, how does this apply to uh, us today, in the context of the story, uh, are we meant to, forced to, must we care for our parents in their old age? And their response is, well, kind of. See, here's how it goes. Notice what he says in verses uh, 9 and down. Here's what he says. He explains the situation. In verse 9, Jesus says this. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells you his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making Void the word of God by your tradition, and you have handed down, and, so, and many more such things you do. So Exodus 21.17, uh, we find there that there's an illustration of how this plays out. There's a couple who, there's those who um, are spoken of who don't care for their parents, and there it says that the penalty for that is death. So God obviously sees this as a very important rule for the Jews. You need to care for your parents. I'm dead serious about this. It's a big deal. But the scribal tradition found a loophole that freed kids from honoring their parents with financial support, which would have been assumed as inherent to the idea of honoring parents. And scribes appealed to Corbin, the provision of making something divine property, they used that to get out of it, and I'm guessing that they probably followed up that, that rule of calling something Corbin, which said, this is God, so nobody else can have it. They probably followed that up with Deuteronomy's law about vows and oaths, which says you cannot break an oath or a vow. Now, if you're thinking like, this is getting complicated, well, it's complicated to get out of obeying God. And so this is the case that they build. And so apparently people were offering their provisions, their possessions to God, while retaining the rights to enjoy them themselves as long as they lived to get out of caring for their parents. Does that sound good? The scribes declared that the law about vows took precedence over the law about honoring father and mother. And Jesus says, catch this, this is just one of many examples of the way that you seek to undermine the Word of God for your own words. And this is an example of how your rules are heartless, and far from God. So these men knew God's word, but did not know God. Their hearts were far from Him. They sought to keep the rules without knowing the ruler. Let me just ask you this. What about your heart? Is your heart prone in any one of these ways to be a legalist in the way that you interact with God or others? You know, maybe this morning you are recognizing that you have started subtly to obey God because you're supposed to and not from the heart. Not because your heart is warm towards God and the grace that's been shown to you, but because you know you're supposed to. So let me ask you this. As you are reading the Word of God daily, maybe this is you, do you feel as though you have to do this and that's why you do this, not because it actually gives you a fresh encounter with the Lord? Or maybe you're not doing it and you're scared to do it and you don't want to do it, but you feel like you should and you feel guilty because that's the kind of thing that Christians do. That's a horrible reason to read your Bible. Or maybe you're bothered this morning because you're struggling to pray and to speak to God. Or, or to come to church or to get along with people that are around you in the church. Are you bothered all this morning about not being moved from the heart to love God and to do these things because you love Him and because you love others? I think this is really important for the Christian. You know, it could be this morning that you have taken this idea of the heart and the motives, maybe you have a very sensitive conscience, and you thought, well, I know that my motives 
are not good. They're never perfect. And friend, they never will be until Jesus comes back. That's why Jesus needs to come back. But maybe subtly you've started to think, well, if my motives are good, does it really matter anyway? Well, brother or sister, if you are in Christ, let me let you know that it matters anyway. See, Jesus came because our motives are impure. That's why we need Christ. And that's why we need Christ to return. Because then He will fully free us from this body of sin. But until then, let me encourage you. If you are feeling in your heart that maybe it's that because your motives are bad, obedience isn't worth it, I believe that there's an answer for this. You know, we ought to please God. Now, let me give you an example. I one day had a, a woman who emailed me, Josh, I'm leaving my husband for another man. And the reason I'm doing this is because I'm not happy with the man that I'm with, and I know that God wants me to be happy. That is really, I believe, at the core of it, you know, a, an issue of motives and desire. And it says, if my desires aren't perfect, I need to change my situation rather than obeying God. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. The answer to struggling to be faithful from the heart with good motives isn't to disobey God so you feel better. In the same way that if you're struggling to find joy in obeying God's call to be faithful in meeting together with your local church, as Hebrews commands us, or or praying, or meditating on God's Word, or giving, the answer isn't to stop until your heart is right. See, sometimes I believe that Satan will tell you that your motives are bad, so obedience doesn't matter. And maybe you're believing that this morning. But in those moments, tell Satan, thank you for the reminder that your motives need work. Thank you. I'll start working on that today. But obey God now, and work on your motives as you go. In other words, don't give up because your motives are bad. Work on your motives and keep on being faithful in obedience. I think you'd be surprised that the more that you're obedient and the more that you're faithful, the more that your heart will love God in obedience and faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, legalism is something that can even invade the heart in a Romans 7 kind of way of a believer who loves Jesus. We need to be at war in our own souls against legalism. See, Jesus, though, He says this. He says the real problem is not our external actions or things out here that make us unclean, Ultimately, the the big problem that we have, Jesus says, our problem is unclean, poopy hearts. That's right. Unclean, poopy hearts. That's our problem. You may say, why do you say that? Well, because the Bible says that. Look at verses 14 to 23. See, here Jesus shares another parable illustrating that humanity's greater defilement problem is inside, not outside. And here's how he says it, beginning in verse 14. There in verse 14 of Mark 7, it says this. And he called the people to him again. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, you'll notice that Jesus here explains That people aren't defiled by outside stuff coming in, but what goes outside from within. And then he gives the disciples who are equally slow to hear special teaching on this in verses 18 to 23. And notice that he starts to compare the heart to the stomach. You know where I'm going with this, right? And and here's what he says in verses 18 all the way down uh, to verse 20. Here's what he says. He says this. He says, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding, disciples? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now just just catch this. Do you see it? Jesus says they're more concerned about external things that hit the stomach than they are about the more significant internal issues of the heart. That's their problem. And the Pharisees have paid such attention to laws about foods that ultimately all end up in the same place. Where do they end up? In the stomach. And then where? The latrine, right? That's where it goes. He says, that's what you've been putting all of your thought into. Now, uh, here's a quick side note that I think is really cool, all right? Uh, Notice, by the way, 
This little parenthesis in verse 19 where Mark says, and thus he declared all foods clean. Now this is why this is amazing. You'll know that this is way before Peter's vision of the sheet dropping down from heaven with the unclean animals on it in Acts 10. This is before that where he declares all foods clean, right? This is happening here. And you remember that Mark gets his gospel from Peter and his testimony. And so here Mark's saying, guess what? Jesus did this. Peter didn't make that up. Jesus said this himself. He made all things clean. Here we find that way before Peter's vision of of the sheet and unclean animals dropping down out of the heaven, Jesus made all things clean. Makes sense given that he's using Peter's testimony. But Mark says this. He says Jesus declares all animals clean. Again, this is a good statement for us. All, All foods clean. Like bacon. I thought I was going to have clapping. Okay. But, I mean, this is a good word, right? And I thought, here, what we find is, is the Pharisees show more concern for what's going into their mouths than what is coming out of their hearts. In Houston, we have a problem when we are so concerned about what's out there and not paying attention to our souls and what's driving us and whether or not it's Jesus and a love for Him and the preeminency, the eminency of Christ above all things that is actually motivating us to live our lives. He says, have you smelled what's coming out of your hearts? It's not good. And in verses 21 to 23, check out what he says. He says this in 21 to 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they are the things that defile a person. So do you see it? You see what what he's doing here? He says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. It's out of our hearts that those evil thoughts come. Now the heart, again, it's a core of who we are. And Jesus says it's from the core of who we are that those evil thoughts are coming. Uh, And evil, literally here, kakos, kaka thoughts, bad thoughts, right? Coming out. And it's, it's more than just passing thoughts that he's talking about. See, this word for thoughts is interesting. It can mean a thought, but it can also mean a process of reasoning. Uh, we see this in Romans 1.21. You'll remember there is Paul begins to unfold the gospel and he starts with all of humanity under the sun. And he says there that the world has become futile in their thinking. Now, it's not just a a thought that they had that was bad. He says the whole mechanism of the way they understand the world has become corrupt. And here, Jesus is saying the exact same thing. In fact, you'll notice here again, uh, He gives a list of 12 sins. And those 12 sins, they follow, offer a variety of vices and sins. Each of those sins, those 12 sins flow And all of them, I believe, in this text are flowing from this evil reasoning. In other words, the main thing is evil reasoning. Your your cognitive equipment, the way that your heart is working, it's it's wicked. And let me just give you 12 things that pop out. I could give more, but I'm going to give you 12. And there he goes on to give that list of 12 things. And I believe Jesus gives this list of sins, not so we can stop on each one and spend a lot of time there, but so that his disciples will understand the bigger issues is their hearts, not their stomachs. Their sins, the, purport, the, the magnitude of evil that has come from them, as opposed to the good that comes from Christ, they don't look like Jesus or the people that God has made them to be. And they're so busy figuring out legal uh, loopholes so they can get what they want and keep God's rules without respect to hearts that are for God. They're so busy doing that they have not pursued God. And Jesus draws attention to the stinky moral mess that has resulted from their efforts. I'm not sure this text here is is trying to argue for total depravity in context as much as saying that it's not what comes out of the stomach, but what's coming out of the heart that matters. And, And that's the problem with legalism. It's losing sight on the heart. And as a church, I think we need to also recognize as we read this and think about legalism, we ought to be the most 
loving place on the planet. And please hear this. Not because it's our rule. We are not kind because it's a rule of our church. If you want to fit in here, you're going to be kind. And if you don't, we're not going to love you. No, we we ought to be the kindest place on the planet. But love is different than legalism. We ought to joyfully, sacrificially love others in difficult ways because of the extravagant love of the Father that has been lavished on us. Sending His Son, Jesus, whom He loved from eternity's past with an infinity of affection down to this earth to, to love us by displaying His love and dying for you and me on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven by God. And the love of the Spirit who, when Jesus was raised from the dead, actually poured Him out upon those who put their faith in Him. Notice this. I actually do believe there's a significance to the 12 sins here. Now, I know all these past couple of sermons I've joked about the significance of numbers. And I've Jesus juked you every time. But I actually do think that this number of 12 is meaningful. I might be wrong, and I'll have plenty of people correct me later if that's true. But here's what, what I think is going on. See, here we find that he lists out, Jesus lists out 12 sins that come out of their hearts. I think there's any significance to the fact that this follows up a story about Jesus who fed 5,000 men with five breads and, and two fish, and after they were through, how many baskets did they have left over? 12, an overabundance of grace, 12 coming from Jesus. And out of our hearts come 12 sins. See, I think that here what we find is, is that Jesus might offer 12 sins that come from our hearts to contrast His good provision of 12 baskets of bread over and above what they needed that anticipate the communion where Jesus claims to be the bread of life. Now, why would I say that? Like, why are we talking about bread again? Well, because Jesus talks about bread in verses 24 to 30. And notice what happens. Jesus says He is the bread that sinners need. But notice in these final verses, notice that a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman, mind you, in this culture would have been very strange for her to approach Jesus, but she, a Gentile, very clear a Gentile, comes to Jesus, a Jew. And she is begging Jesus to save her daughter from demon possession. My guess is she's looked everywhere else. My guess is she's heard the story about the demoniac that he rescued and the garrisons. And she knows that if there's anybody that can save her, and she's looked everywhere else, it is this man, Jesus. And catch what Jesus says in verses 27 when she comes up. And she asks of him this thing of saving her daughter. He says, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. You're like, what bread are they talking about? Don't miss this. Dogs here is as offensive in Greek as it is in English. He's not saying, what's up, my dog? You know, like, your crew. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you're basically a dog, and it's offensive. In fact, commentator Peter O'Brien, writing about this, he says, for the Jew, it meant unclean. And we've been talking about unclean and washing your hands. Unclean, like wild dogs who fed on carrion, filth, garbage, and other things. And those who clearly didn't follow the Pharisees' dietary laws and Jews outside of the covenant were considered to be dogs. All those who were outside of keeping the Pharisees' laws, Gentiles and Jews who did not obey them, they were dogs. Notice that the woman isn't deterred by Jesus calling her a dog and asking why she has any part in the bread that He has to offer. Verse 28, she says, Yes, Lord. She's not giving up. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus, at that, we are told, removed the demon for her faith, for this woman's faith. See, this woman says, I need bread that only you can provide. And I'll be happy with just a crumb. Just a crumb of what you are is enough. Tell me something. Are you that desperate for Jesus this morning? You come before Him and you say, Jesus, I need you to do some wild miracle and something big and bold and fantastic. Or do you to come to Him like this woman that says, if I just had a crumb, it would be enough. I believe that you are that great that if I had just but a crumb of who you are, it would change my life forever. It would rescue my daughter. Friends, do we find that kind of faith in the story of Mark amongst any of the Jews? This woman, she has profound faith. And the same thing, Here's what's fascinating. 
she shows greater faith than the disciples here. And the same thing happens in Acts 10, right after Peter declares from God, all foods are clean. And when Peter does that, he says all foods are clean, like we just saw here, right? Immediately what happens is he meets who? Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and he leads him to Christ. And he says, if I can eat that, even you can be saved. Why? Because unclean meant outside. And here Jesus says, you know what, what you need to come inside? You need to put your faith in me with your whole heart. And when you put your faith in me, I give you living bread that changes your world. It changes your future. It changes everything you're about. And your eternity will be forever different because of the fact that you got a crumb of who I am. Here's the point. If you don't know Christ, Jesus is your greatest need. There is no greater need. I don't know what need drove you here. But the need that you have deeper than any need is a new heart. A changed heart. A heart that is satisfied and not angry anymore. Because you have been fed with living bread. And you know that that the best is yet to come. And you have an inheritance with God. And you are a child of God. And you're not needy because your father's not needy. You don't have to sin to get what you can, all you can get out of this world because you know that this world is the basement, not the ceiling for who you are and what God has planned for you. Let me tell you this, the one thing that you need more than anything is Christ Himself. That's the thing that kills legalism. I I don't have a law that I can keep that's going to save me. I don't have a rule that can make me, that I can make that is going to help me. What I really need is Jesus Himself who came and died on the tree for me at Calvary. Let's pray.
now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting Google, Play Store, or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's program on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello listeners, this is Sharon Lee with the Refining Faith. Today is the 10th program in our series Refining Faith. Are you becoming more familiar with the word refining? We shared at the very beginning that refining is something that we don't want to come across during our spiritual life if possible, because the word refining reminds us of painful and difficult situations. But as we have already discussed, the Bible clearly states that refining is a very necessary process in living a godly life, and through refining, God molds us to the image He wants us to be. But today's generation is more attracted to a spiritual life that focuses on themselves rather than focusing on God. They think they are worthy to be loved by God rather than being interested in learning about the love of God. As a result, some of them think that God exists only to suit their worldly interests. And because of that, this ideology that God loves me just as I am because I'm a good person is becoming very popular, especially with the younger Christians. They say that because God loves them so much that He even gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, God wants them to come to Him the way they are with no need for improvement or refining. For those who think like this, it is much more difficult for them to understand the concept of a refining. They think, why would they need to go through the painful process of refining if God loves them the way they are? They believe refining is only the process of removing impurities to extract pure gold or silver. If we look at the definition of the word refining in Hebrew and Greek, we find that the word has a little different meaning than what we think it means. For this week and next week, we look at the deeper meaning of the word refining used in the original biblical languages. Let's start by looking at the Hebrew meaning of refining in the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3, we read, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Most certainly, silver is refined in the smoldering refining pot and Gold is refined in the scorching fire of the furnace. The heat brings the impurities called dross to the surface and is skimmed away, leaving only the pure silver and gold. But the Hebrew word bahan, which means refining, has the meaning to test or to verify. It means to verify a certain object, especially a metal, by testing and examining it. Isn't it a little different from what we thought the meaning of the word refining is? The exact meaning of the Hebrew word bahan that was translated as a refining is testing a metal by melting it. In other words, the gold is verified as gold by melting it, and silver is verified as silver by melting it. Then, what do you think it means when God refines our hearts? Yes, it means to test and verify whether our hearts are for God and whether our faith is a true faith. There are many verses from the Bible that are quoted frequently, and one of them is Job chapter 23, verse 10. It says, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as a gold. We take this verse as God trains and refines us in our lives. And when the refining is over, we will become like a pure gold and will be used for His purposes. 
When we think on this verse, it is as if Job is confessing that after he endures all the hardships and tribulation that are happening to him, he will become a purified person just like a pure gold. But what Job said is not that he will be a purified person through the hardship and tribulation that he endured, but as if he was going through it. He said this as a reply to his friends who were judging him and saying he was being punished for the sins he committed. Job is saying, that is not so. God knows all the things I've been doing. He will know that I'm free of all sins if he tests me, as he defends his innocence. Now let's look at this same verse in the New International Version, which reads, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as a gold. And the New King James Version reads, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as a gold. In other words, the word refining means the process of verifying our faith. It means that God is testing and verifying our faith by refining us. His purpose for refining is not to make our lives difficult. God's purpose for refining is to check and see our faith. If we realize that, we will not think God will not put us through refining that makes my life difficult. Because God's refining is to test and verify our faith in Him and not to put us through hardship. Has today's refining faith put your thoughts about God's refining in order? Have you set a new point of view on God's refining in your life? I truly hope that you have. This has been Refining Faith, signing off. Bye.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.